into the moth light. In this episode of Into the Moth Light, we talk to Canadian artist Stephen Brumer. This is the first of three interviews with artists attending the recent Alchemy Film and Moving Image Festival here in Scotland. Stephen is an interdisciplinary media artist working in the traditions of experimental film, photochemical abstraction and collage. He also works within the fields of film preservation, film history, education and programming. His written work includes a study of the early evolution of Canadian avant-garde film. He was one of the key speakers at the Filmmaker Symposium at Alchemy and presented the UK premiere of his recent work Tondal's Vision. This work is described as a curiously terrifying ode to the long-standing figure of medieval literature and an unwavering exercise in visual intensification. So I started our chat by asking Stephen about the origins of this found footage work, his processes and what the audience may experience from viewing it. Into the Moth Light. Tondal's Vision is um, a film It's made out of... Um, a very early feature film from the history of Italian cinema. It's an adaptation made by Giuseppe De Leggero of um, The Inferno, of Dante's Inferno. Um, De Leggero, he, um, and I'm butchering his name, um, I'm sure, um, he was a, uh, a remarkable force in early cinema in that he, he had this unwavering belief that cinema could be used as a force for education and for keeping like um, the great classics of of, of Western literature um, uh, in, in circulation in in one sense, but also accessible. Um, that that film was this thing that could empower the masses um, to access heartening visions of the great stories of Western literature. I'm thinking here of the one, the ones he undertook are uh, the Odyssey and Dante's Inferno. What I have done. Uh, is I have rephotographed that film. I've rephotographed it from video, um, from uh, standard definition video copies of the film. Um, and then I have hand processed this uh, so that the film image as it's exposed takes on all of this grit of scratching and all this kind of kinetic energy that happens when one hand processes film in buckets. 16 millimeter film. I have then used chemistry, destructive chemistry in the sense that, corrosive chemistry in the sense that what it is doing is eroding um, the images. It's eroding the emulsion which is the black component of a black and white image. Um, And um, that causes the entire film to sort of look like the figures are melting. Um, That's one way to think of it. It it also breaks down um, the film strips so that it comes apart in in kind of veils of um, uh, transparent um, muck uh, transparent emulsion that then dries in place so that you have this sense that what you're looking at isn't isn't a solid thing that's being reproduced but like a, a curtain um, like the world is a curtain um, what I've then done is I have digitized that I've brought it into a computer and I've used a computer to add colors and the colors are taken from a 15th century um, Simon Marmion uh, illumination of uh, a, a pre-Dantean fable um, called Tondal's Vision. Um, and in this sense, what I've done is I've taken an adaptation of Dante. I have rearranged it 
and altered it and turned it into an adaptation of something that would have inspired Dante. In that sense, it's a very new experience. Now, that's all of the story background. Uh, I use the word programmatic to describe those kinds of story aspects um, of a work, and they inform my process. I don't expect that to inform you. Um, I don't expect you to come into the work uh, having um, all the same knowledge that I have of this story. I also don't mean to communicate any of this knowledge through what you see. Um, I'm interested in building a kind of experience. And in some sense, I'm, I'm interested in building a kind of open experience that we can then build upon together. Um, yeah, uh, so, so when you ask me uh, what it is that you've experienced, I don't know. But, but I know that what I experience um, is a kind of a vision of hell that is not like one that I have seen but which is very much um, how I would imagine it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my idea of, of, of hell and damnation and the afterlife is not altogether a, um, a negative one. Um, there are things I, I've said in the Q&A today that there are aspects of this that I consider much closer to paradise mm-hmm. than the world that we live in. Your vision of hell, but within that, so much beauty and and so much intensity. To experience it was massively enjoyable, but very intense. I I, I can't imagine it would be easy material to work with because I, I can see, um, you know, there there are shifts in, in in texture, there are shifts in tone, there are shifts in the in the sounds that we're listening to, uh, and and within that, what we could loosely describe as chapters. But as a, as a huge piece of work with so much detail, how do you go about going through that process? Sure. Well, I mean, one thing I might say about structuring is that I'm very lucky in that I have two guides for structuring this work already. One of those is um, Delaguerre's film um, and my own experience of having read translations of the Inferno. Um, the other is the Visio Nugdalis Tandale or Tondal's vision, which gives me two separate narratives that have shared elements. They are both about people being guided through the afterlife and witnessing the repercussions of life on Earth, witnessing ironic uh, ends to, to, to their um, sins. Um, and um, by having those two elements, I'm able to approach the material with a sense of, of how uh, I can create beginnings, middles, and endings out of this. Now, that said... Um, you asked me about my, my day as a filmmaker and um, what it's like managing this material. Mm. I might compare what I did here with what I did in my last film. The last film that I made, Potamkin, um, took th- about three years, um, three to four years, depending on how you think about you know how much a research process takes, how much actual production takes. And it was a very um, costly endeavor in a lot of different ways, including um, emotionally, health-wise, etc. Um, the chemistry that I'm using creates a very oppressive atmosphere. Um, it's also ex- extraordinarily dangerous. Um, and I don't, uh, don't wish it on anybody, but I also can't stop mixing it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the reason I, I bring this up is that was a very long process, and I was in the darkroom for weeks at a time by which I mean day after day putting in multiple hours. For that film, it's a 67-minute film, so it's roughly the same length as Tondal's Vision. It involved doing these kinds of processes to an immense amount of footage, between four and six hours. 
of 16 millimeter film, um, much of which when it went through these chemical baths would simply vanish because I would have mixed it too strong or I left it in too long. So it's really a chance process in that sense. With Tondal's vision, I learned lessons from the previous one. And the production process on this, this is a film that I'd wanted to make for a long time, but um, the actual production process from um, re-photography to lab to digitization and output um, was probably only somewhere in the range of uh, six to eight months, um, of which I only had five or six days in the darkroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very brief process for a film that is, I mean, again, it's over an hour long, um, but part of that is because I figured out the best methods for approaching the chemistry. I had all of the experience of the previous film that I could draw from. Um, I wasn't muddling in the dark uh, mm-hmm. exactly. So I was able to um, control what I was doing more. And in this film, unlike t- un- unlike Potamkin, Tondal's vision was mostly created in a computer. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you see up there that, that I think reflects... Um, uh, I don't know if I want to say rigorousness. I more likely want to say onerousness, something, I, something aggravating, uh, but uh, is the uh, the amount of time that was spent um, uh, developing the color work, which is all digital. Mm-hmm. It's all in a computer. And, and the layering work, which is all digital in this project. What we'll do for anyone who's not had the opportunity to see Tundle's vision, we'll share the link to the, the trailer on our social media and people can get a snapshot of, of, of the intensity and the beauty of that work. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more about found footage work. Um, so what, what was your sort of early introduction to, to found footage as, as an art form? Well, uh, it's kind of funny. I feel like uh, found footage has so many different um, definitions and inroads because um, I remember watching, uh, you know, um, documentaries that use archival footage when I was growing up. I remember seeing movies like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid when I was a little kid. Um, And seeing found footage work as a kind of art form probably came into my consciousness sometime in my early teens. But the work that I really most strongly, because I would have seen, I'm from Toronto and I I would have seen um, presentations of Bruce Connor films around that time in art galleries and so on. Being a Canadian, I grew up watching Arthur Lipset films on television, things like that. Um, but the the first film that really had an impact on me in terms of this being something I wanted to make um, was seeing Rose Hobart when I was about uh, 17 or 18 years old in university and um, Joseph Cornell's Rose Hobart, um, which is this astonishing um, American surrealist film from the mid-1930s um, in which the filmmaker has um, taken a a Latin jazz record that he bought in a junk shop as the soundtrack and as the image. He has taken a film print. Some say he bought it in a junk shop. I'm not so sure about that. I don't know the details well enough. Um, but he was known to be like an early film collector as well. He probably got it in a junk shop. Of a film called East of Borneo, starring an actress named Rose Hobart. Um, and he re-edited this movie um, so that um, it becomes more like a kind of psychic interrogation of um, Rose Hobart, where all of this actress's emotions, which are, you know, very stagey and very dramatic in some ways, and in other ways very subtle, take on monolithic pr- proportions. Um, this, to me, is like the the birth of found footage. At, it was the birth of found footage in general, but it's the birth of found footage as a kind of dream logic. Mm. Um, and I said something in my talk the other day about how 
Um, what, what he was doing was recognizing that Hollywood cinema in the mid-1930s, after it had been around for, well, Hollywood cinema for two decades, but cinema itself for almost four, um, had become uh, a common river of dreams. Um, and that you could draw from that, and you could you could transform it into something that that you that you would shape, um, and that for me that that's how I come to found footage originally. And then, you know, that's now I'm almost uh, eighteen years on for me, and um, in the in the in, in the intervening time, I've I've uh, I've written books about found footage films, um, films by. Jack Chambers that use found footage, uh, for instance, um, figure prominently in um, uh, my book Codes for North. Um, and I'm currently writing a book about, about Arthur Lipset. So um, found footage has just sort of become a kind of focal point for me in these years for both my practice and for my writing. And I was interested to hear yesterday that you, you say that you're, you're less and less interested in, in finding new images yourself because I guess there is that abundance of archive footage out there which is just ripe to be plundered. Well sure and I, I mean I uh, I still love the experience of shooting film with a Bullock 16mm camera or with you know um, Niso and Canon Super 8 cameras. I love that experience um, but for me working with found materials doesn't seem like an unfamiliar gesture at all because even my earliest films, um, I have this weird history about myself, which is that um, I went to film school when I was 18 years old, 17, 18 years old around then, and um, did a BFA in film. And for the first year that I was there, I was really interested in making sort of um, uh, Brackage and Mencken-style lyric films. That's what I wanted to do. So I shot a lot of Super 8, not for school projects, though, just for myself. And eventually I sort of had it beaten out of me. Um, by my my unbearable parochial film school that no one would ever allow me to survive as a, a an artist so I should just learn a craft um, and that sort of discouraged me away from making uh, film as art for a long time I became a documentary filmmaker instead and gave me a different skill set that I appreciate but nevertheless what I'm getting to is all those Super 8 reels that I shot when I was 17, 18 years old became the material for my art practice when I was 25, 26 and started to make work again. I, I found boxes of old reels and I just started turning them into something new that had the subjectivities that I had in that time as opposed to what I felt when I was a teenager. So I took all of these kind of romantic, lyric, observational films and I started working with them in, in, ter in terms of... Um, I don't necessarily like this word so much, but structural um, uh, patterns. Mm -hmm. um, so that, in that sense, I feel like I've always made some found footage films, but I certainly also would go out and gather new materials and work with new materials. But for me, it's uh, it's currently just not a time that I, I feel that comfortable with shooting new materials, partly for economic reasons, partly for, uh, um, for the fact that... Um, I, I feel like when I'm using these chemical processes, I'm making images my own. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it strikes me as being both cheaper and more efficient. Um, and one of the things I said in the talk yesterday that I think is the most important part of this is that it allows me to make a particular kind of um, historical statement, statements about big themes. I mean, there are, there are large themes around authorship and mentorship and uh, strife in these films like Potamkin and Tondal's Vision. Um, that I don't think I would be able to achieve without um, destroying myself if I was taking images myself. 
So in the symposium yesterday, you, you, you did categorise the, the various traditions in the use of, of found footage. So I wonder if you might um, talk us through some of, some of those ideas and theories. Sure. Um, I mean, this is just me speaking off the cuff because um, although I am uh, semi-academic, uh, I don't really know that much about the existing literature on found footage. This is just from observation. Um, I, and, and it's probably way too mystical for the comfort of most academics. Um, I tend to think of, of found footage as breaking into three different traditions, um, and I'm sure you could splinter it further than that. I talk about the psychic tradition, um, for which I mean um, films that um, use the tension of editing to create um, uh, linkages between images that are um, uh, placing a demand on us to build connections. And those connections may not always be things that we can put into words. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be more about building a, a tone or an atmosphere or an experience. And that's the psychic tradition I see as beginning with Rose Hobart in 1936. Um, and it continues through to uh, Bruce Connor and Arthur Lipset. Um, in the 1960s, they're working in the same kinds of modes, and I think that it, its 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 motives metamorphose into the other strains at that point. But I feel like it's a distinct thing early on. Um, the second strain I, I identify is um, is the plastic film, um, and I see that as beginning in 1942 with Charles Ridley's Schickel Gruber doing the Lambeth Walk, um, which is this, you know, very funny but very slight movie. Where he has taken, where it's a propaganda film. Um, he and his team, it's an animation team, I presume, have taken um, newsreel footage of Nazis um, marching and of and of Hitler, um, and they have um, uh, staggered them. They let them play forward a few frames, and then they rewind them a few frames, and so on, so that they are doing the Lambeth Walk, which was a, a popular dance of the era. Um, and it's very funny, and it is a lampooning, and it makes them look ridiculous. <laughs> um, and that's wonderful. Um, it is not, this is one of the things I said in the talk yesterday, it's not some kind of grand comment on totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. It doesn't provoke deeper thought than um, Nazis are buffoons. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to. That's, I think it's perfectly, it's a valid thing. It would be a valid thing, and I would love it, if world leaders would step out tomorrow and just say Nazis are buffoons. That is a perfectly fine <laughs> statement. Um, but, you know, it, it, what I'm saying is that the plastic stream at that point is like doing funny things with images. Mm-hmm. It's not um, creating something that is rich and, and deep in the way that Rose Hobart is rich and deep. Um, and when I say traditions, I mean these are lone objects. These are, and they're, they're evolving in terms of their use of archival material at the same time that mainstream cinema is doing this. Um, and so... You know, it is a very um, splintered way to think about it as a tradition or as a, a line. Um, but I, I see the the plastic tradition um, uh, evolving uh, into um, structural films that use um, these kinds of um, 
plastic manipulation, one of which is um, Jack Chambers' The Heart of London. Um, this is a film that uh, uses most pronouncedly, uh, the first half hour of it, um, a stream. I know no other way to describe it but to say a stream of um, images mostly taken from the residents of London, Ontario, um, which is a, 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 a little town in a little town. It's a city in Canada that uh, takes its its name from from uh, London, England, along with a lot of other things, including having a Thames River and so on. <laughs> um, and uh, he took you know a century of footage, and he just superimposed it all on top of itself. And they're mostly photographs, so they're still images, and they just steadily move along. And you'll have moving images mixed into it as well. And they're home movies, and it's 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 a solid. 30 to 35 minutes of what I have described as a kind of silver chorus. It's, it's him bringing back all of the ghosts of his town. Um, and because it is a film about that town, it's a, mis- a highly mystical film about that town, it is like a, a kind of um, haunted sequence. The reason that I'm mentioning that is because um, the structural film movement began to deal with these plastic strains, and they began to do things that were um, more elastic to the image than um, something like uh, Rose Hobart or the Connor and Lipset films. The ultimate example of this in the American context is is Tom Tom the Piper's Son by Ken Jacobs, by Ken Jacobs, where Ken Jacobs has taken a uh, short, silent adaptation of Tom Tom the Piper's Son, and he has used an analytical projector to. Um, uh, stretch it out in terms of time and to 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 um, zoom in on details and have it play back in all these ways so that it becomes a kind of ultimate work um, a, a kind of ultimate meditation on the shadows of cinema that to me is the next major step in the plastic strain um, but we have similar things happening elsewhere in the UK you have Malcolm Legrese making the Berlin horse not too long after this, um, and also, by the way, I have to say, in Canada, you have David Rimmer making films like Variation on a Cellophane Wrapper um, and Surfacing on the Thames. Um, but uh, by the 1980s, you have a really dramatic manifestation of this engagement with found materials, with Martin Arnold and Peter Tchaikovsky in Austria making these incredibly dark, funny, sometimes funny, sometimes horrifying um, films um, out of um, images from Hollywood movies. Um, so that's what I see as being like the evolution of the psychic strain and the plastic strain, and they somehow start to overlap in their motives when the work starts to get kind of, when the plastic work start to, starts to get deep, if that makes sense. When, when you have something like The Heart of London, you can't dismiss what Jack Chambers is doing as being like funny and slight. It's, it's something genuinely profound. Um, and then the, the, when I talked yesterday, I, I also talked about the perfect film, which is a, a term I'm taking from Ken Jacobs. Ken Jacobs found this film and decided that it was perfect as it is, and so as a ready-made, he printed it as it was, and that's what we have. And there are some other examples of that. Rebecca Barron's uh, Detour to Force, um, uh, William E. Jones' Tea Room. Um, it is an area that I think is of great interest to some people. It is not of interest to me. It's a valid third form that has no direct connection to those other two forms. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have the kind of intervention that the plastic form does. It doesn't have the kind of um, uh, authored potency that the psychic form does. Into the moth light. 
It's probably worth mentioning that at this point we take a pause in our interview and recording and we end up picking up our chat the following morning where Stephen continues to talk to me about trends in found footage. Into the moth light. I see uh, found footage evolving into um, this engagement with the chemical vanguard which is happening in, in American cinema especially in the uh, 80s and and 90s and and which becomes one of the sort of defining plastic cinemas of of American avant-garde film through the work of um especially Phil Solomon and Bill Morrison that work um is in some ways the most recent new visual iteration of found footage filmmaking that interests me i'm sure that there's a lot going on in video remix culture and so on um that just falls a little bit outside of of my purview but um that's the the work that um uh, it certainly was on my mind when I was starting to research the methods um, that um, uh, you know uh, underlie uh, Potamkin and um, uh, Tondel's vision. That almost leads me on to another question because I know that you do travel quite extensively. You know, uh, up to date in, in twenty nineteen, are you identifying other trends as you meet other filmmakers or attend? other festivals and see brand new work that, that comes loosely under the category of phone footage. Well, it's kind of funny to um, to think about categorization in the present for me because I have these different careers of being a film preservationist and a historian um, and a filmmaker um, and trying to be a part of like um, the world with my contemporaries. I try not to categorize things as I see them, um, although I will say that I, I find it very heartening um, that there are uh, festivals dedicated exclusively to found footage as a practice, and that tells me a lot about how diverse these forms can be. Um, I'm thinking specifically of um, the Festival of Inappropriation, um, and um, especially um, uh, Muta in uh, in Peru, uh, which um, uh, is sort of the commissioning festival of Tondel's vision in some ways, because um, uh, they had been so supportive of um, Potamkin that I I knew I was going to make this film, and uh, and I gave it to them as a kind of premiere uh, work, um, which you know, and they've been very very supportive. But they are uh, they're a new festival. They just started last year, uh, or I guess the year before. Uh, they've had two editions. Um, I'm going there in. Um, in August to Lima uh, to give uh, workshops and talks like the one we had here and uh, uh, and to present uh, new new films the next film uh, in this uh, kind of style that I'm I'm working in now um, and and the very fact that such a, a festival exists I think speaks to the fact that there are diverse forms I mean um, if you can find um, four or five days of programming. Um, of found footage films, there must be diversity and there must be new traditions forming, new styles forming, uh, otherwise it would get pretty boring pretty quickly. Uh. <laughs> you mentioned your work in film restoration and I know that you have a focus on Canadian undergrounds. Um, so th th this is kind of opposite to the destructive element of, of, of your work. So how, how do the two balance in your, your own mind? Sure, well, I mean, for me... Uh, Part of this comes out of being, um, I don't like, I don't necessarily like the term um, film collector uh, in this day and age. I think film collectors are uh, a, an extraordinarily important part of film history. But today, you know, so much of this is ceded to institutions. But for me, I began my interest in film preservation 
with a Canadian focus in my in my immediate environment seeing threatened works and um, over time I've come sort of by necessity to take possession of and care for um, endangered works you know I, I mean I'll be doing research into say a, a film society and former members of it will say here's a film I made 50 years ago uh, I, I don't have space for it I'm gonna throw it in the trash will you uh, will you want will you be wanting this uh, as a result of that I live sort of in, in on two levels of uh, film preservation uh, I have projects that are ongoing that usually deal with um, a combination of lab and digital processes working with various elements sometimes multiple prints um, uh, negatives and optical soundtracks and so on um, and I also have um, the day-to-day -day reality of um, checking in on and taking care of a, a tiny archive of um, early Canadian um, amateur underground films and between those two experiences uh, I've I've come to be very familiar with how film ages and rots. You know um, that that experience of the the fragile uh, material uh, has informed um, uh, some of these processes. It's absolutely true, um, but also uh, you know I mean it, it may be that because of that experience, I am just a little bit more mindful about how I approach physical objects than than some people working in found footage film who would say take a home movie and just destroy it to turn it into art um i'm i'm always kind of working between um forming my own copies of things and 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 working with them and trying what trying trying in my way to to minimize uh my uh the stomping of my footprint on uh, on things that I'm lucky enough to work with, but that don't really belong to me. Mm -hmm. And in fact, on that note, I, I also think that it's really wonderful that so much of what's happening in found footage filmmaking um, today is rooted in big open source projects like uh, the Prelinger Archives, um, where artists are using Creative Commons licenses and just you know the the free will of the internet um, to uh, work with uh, digital shadows of films, um, which I see as being like the 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 most wonderful and most harmless um, way to interact with uh, with other people's images. Mm -hmm. And I guess an example from dipping into an archive would be Fountains of of Paris, and that that's a work that you've been generous enough to share online, and we will uh, put the the link out so people can have a look at it. So I, I, I guess the images are drawn from a particular uh, collection. Um, so do you see the kind of archive and the uh, images uh, or the footage within a, a, as a kind of palette for you to draw upon? Well, Founds of Paris is a unique project in that sense, in the sense of palette um, and in the sense of its, its um, roots. Uh, I might give a little bit of background on this, that it's a commission from the Liaison of, Liaison of Independent Filmmakers of Toronto. Um, uh, they received a very generous donation of um, equipment and films um, taken by a brilliant uh, journeyman cinematographer named Jacques Madvaux, um, who made a lot of, um, I guess we would call them um, uh, industrial documentaries, tourism documentaries and things like that, but he would also 
shoot a lot of sort what 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 would become B-roll news footage. And um, as a freelance cinematographer, he would travel all through the Middle East shooting, um, you know, uh, uh, major world events, and then he would sell the footage um, to to news agencies. The film that I'm working with, or the films that I'm working with, one of them is of um, stained glass windows at uh, Chartres, and the other one is... um, uh, an, a tourism film of sorts, uh, showing um, uh, work and recreation in Paris around the uh, the fountains. Um, when I was asked to, you know, make a film with this material, there was there was some freedom to make physical film copies of of his work, or to work with them digitally. I opted to work with them digitally. What struck me about that work, uh, I had spent a long time with the films of Ian Hugo. Um, I'm very fortunate to have what I, I take to be the the largest um, personally owned archive of Ian Hugo prints. Um, Hugo was, um, of course, best known as the husband of Anais Nin, um, but uh, was also a, an astonishing uh, filmmaker in his own right, uh, an astonishing artist in his own right. Um, and his work dealt with a lot of that kind of pliable, um, uh, interpenetrating, um, uh, transparent layering that happens in so much of my own work Um, when I saw this film which is of you know Paris recreation in the early 1960s um, I was struck by this sense of an earlier Paris um, the Paris of the lost generation which of course would also be Hugo and Nin's Paris Um, and so what I was trying to do was to create a kind of timeless Paris Um, in the film you have a palette that only really exists in um the stocks of Madvo's era. Um, it's a palette that cannot be easily reproduced. And it is a palette that we also find in Hugo's own films of the same era of the 50s and 60s. Um, he made a beautiful film of Paris nightlife called Jazz of Lights. Um, Hugo did. Um, and so I think of that work as being a kind of strange tribute to both... Madvo, journeyman cinematographer who had made this film that is in many ways a commonplace object, in other ways quite exceptional in its in its craft, um, but also a tribute to this artist who um, is, I think, um, almost criminally unknown, um, and a film that uh, I, I hope honors um, the world in the time between those men occupied it. It's been a pleasure to to speak to you today. Um, Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you so much. Into the Moth It was such a joy spending time with Stephen, watching Tondal's vision projected and talking to him about found footage, his work and his creative processes. We'll share links, information and images on his work and some of the artists and filmmakers he's mentioned in his interview at our new website at intothemothlight.com. Until the next time, goodbye. Into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast.